Welcome to Indie Isles, the movie and TV podcast that issues apologies but not refunds. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Dan Acton. This week, we'll talk about what we've been watching. We'll talk some real news. For conflicts of interest, we'll talk about whether you can trust IMDb ratings. And for our main review, we're talking about indie sci-fi film Synchronic, starring Anthony Mackie and James Dornan. Very excited to discuss that with you. But before we get into that, James, I'm just curious because we've not touched base really for a few weeks about the general goings on in our lives. And I was curious, apart from TV and film binge watching, what do you get up to? I don't know what prompted it, but for the past few days, I've been listening to Sometimes It Snows in April by Prince over and over again. Don't know why. Maybe it's because his fifth anniversary of his death is coming up in two months. I don't know. I just keep listening to it. Obviously good then. I'm not a big Prince fan, so I say that I've not listened to a lot of his stuff. Good place to start, if you're not familiar? Uh, Maybe start with Purple Rain or Sign of the Times. Sometimes it snows in April. It's It's a ballad about a singer that's dead, so it became popular when Prince died. Don't know why I've started listening to it. It's one of those songs that I listen to over and over again until I get absolutely sick of it, then never listen to it ever again. How are you getting through lockdown? When we first went into lockdown 1.0 and then the next one, we did jigsaws quite a lot and they were fun. We got quite into them. Then we got too big for our boots and decided to do more complicated jigsaws, picked one. It was too much. We gave up after playing it for about an hour. Do you play a jigsaw? Don't know. We are quite keen board game geeks though so about five years ago we came across a game called pandemic which is one of the best cooperative strategy games i've ever played and it also had the added bonus of being about something that seemed completely out of the realms of possibility and offered some escapism off the back of this game they released like some seasons editions where you can only play them once and they're quite expensive but we thought well we're in another lockdown what else are we realistically going to do So I decided to buy Pandemic Season Zero the other day. I'm really, really excited. I'm going to read some reviews because I've heard that it's really good. I want to get myself amped up for it. And when I looked at my order, I was scanning through the details and realized that I've ordered the German edition of the game. I was quite annoyed. I canceled it, placed the order again, but I'd ordered the Italian version of the game. (laughs) So... Yeah, that was a bit of a failure. Still not got the English version. It's not available for a reasonable price. Just going to have to wait, I think. All in Italian? No, no, I'm not going to those lengths for this. Absolutely not. So that was a bit of a fail. Have you successfully watched anything this week, James? I have. I successfully found two things to watch, both on Netflix. The first one was Pretend It's a City. Have you heard of this? Heard of it, yes. The Martin Scorsese documentary, is it? Yeah, it's not in the top 10. It's a collection of public speaking appearances and a series of interviews with Fran Lebowitz. And she's usually being interviewed by Martin Scorsese, but Olivia Wilde and Alec Baldwin also appear. I've never heard of Fran Lebowitz. I don't know about you. 
and most of the conversations are about New York and life in New York. And I've never been to New York. I don't have any special interest in New York. So there was no reason for me to watch this. And I can imagine Netflix struggling to think of how to sell this to people. I only watched it because of Martin Scorsese and The Mink Saga, which is the current number one on Netflix, like Bridgerton, is very clearly not aimed at me. I thought this was fantastic. If you like the style and the cadence and the neuroticism of the comedy of Larry David, Sarah Silverman, Woody Allen, watch this, watch this now. It's like Curb Your Enthusiasm in real life with a 70-year-old woman who just doesn't care. She says what she thinks. It's like a stand-up comedy series like Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle if it was edited together from a number of shows and locations. But these aren't stand-up comedy bits. These are interviews. Her way of speaking so likeable for me that if it was legal to go out and meet people, I'd worry that I would imitate her cadence. To just give you some quick examples of what she talks about. She talks about bus drivers and the bus drivers say they can't memorise the stops. But it's your job to memorise the stops. And we didn't used to have wellness. What is wellness? Wellness is extra health. It's greediness. It's not enough that I'm sick. I have to be well. It's that kind of casual talk from a 70-year-old woman. They also talk about film and art and music and literature. And they talk about the bookshops and small movie theatres from the 70s that now don't exist anymore. And I was sucked into that nostalgic discussion, which I didn't think I would be. Fran Leibowitz will mention a place and Scorsese will immediately say, oh yeah, yeah, on 47th Street. So it's just cool to see them talk about these old places. It's a good, breezy, light comedy and cultural chat. Okay, I might check that out then. I was listening to a inferior rival podcast and they said it can come across as whiny because they're talking about or whinging about things that are just not even possible at this moment in time, given the pandemic, and they found it quite abrasive for that reason. I don't know if you see any truth in that. That didn't cross my mind at all. Yes, it's not possible to do those things now, but it's not like they're out of my own living memory, so it was still Mm. relatable enough. And that's why I said inferior podcast. Let's move on. I move to my second watching in the Netflix top 10, Bling Empire, the latest reality hit. You've seen this, I'm sure, on Netflix. I've not, actually. I've not even come across this in the slightest. Well, I've not been, even heard of it. It's been in the top 10 for a while. It's about crazy rich Asians, self-described crazy rich Asians. LA-based people from China, Singapore, Russia slash Japan and Korea, living it up, having lots of money. Is it just another program where you sneer at rich people being disgustingly wealthy and stupid and degenerate? No, it's not. No, it's not, in my opinion. Most of the people in it, I truly believe, are good people with sincere and loving friendships who enjoy spending time with each other. They just happen to be fabulously wealthy, which means they have massive parties, which are fun to watch. There are some genuinely funny scenes in this, which I wasn't expecting, like a scene with a shaman on a beach who does some chanting and clicking with his tongue and wavy gestures and then describes Kelly's romantic situation in such detail that I can't believe that he wasn't briefed beforehand. And I'm sure that the characters, when they're laughing and looking at each other, they're thinking, this is ridiculous. No one will believe this. This is too accurate. And Sherry meets a medium, the Hollywood medium in her house, and he's pretending to speak to her dead mother. And he's scribbling on a piece of paper with a pencil. 
and saying, oh, this is coming through. There's there's something about a baby, something about looking for something in the corner. And when it cuts to the piece of paper that he's scribbling on, it is just random scribbles that a toddler would do, which I found really funny. It was completely meaningless. I don't know what the pencil was supposed to do. There is a requisite amount of arguing and toxic relationship drama, but what makes it stand out is things like the friendship between Kevin and Kane. There are moments where we looked at each other on the sofa and said, Kane is such a good person, such a good friend, for diffusing the penis pump situation, for example. Surprisingly entertaining and sincere, not something like Below Deck, where you'll just hate the people that are involved. And I think what makes it work is that it's really told through the eyes of this guy called Kevin, who's a model who is not rich. He's just friends with the rich people. So he's sort of the protagonist who comes in and says, I've never worn Gucci before. I've never seen this much money before. I've never been to a party like this before. There's this one guy in there that's totally relatable, also very likable and ridiculously handsome. And he's the gateway into it, which makes it a bit more accessible, I think. I completely gave that a miss because I thought it was just a a stocking filler of a TV show that they shoved in there and it didn't really have anything to say. No entertaining moments, but um, you've made me think otherwise now. It's definitely one that the missus would appreciate from the sense of it. So thanks for bringing that back to the forefront of my mind. What have you been watching? You mentioned it at the top of the show about issuing apologies. I'm going to issue one right now. I can't commit to guaranteeing light-hearted content for my watch list. <laughs> I made a minimal effort over the past few weeks. I really do feel a sense of failure. What I'm going to bring up is predictable, as anybody who has listened to the show for a while will know. I'm a human being at the end of the day, James. If we can't stay true to ourselves, what are we? I'm a creature of habit and darkness, and therefore I must abide to me being me. So this week, I'll kick off with Servant Season 2 on Apple TV. Have you seen Servant? I watched season one recently, based on your recommendation, once again. Loved it. Fantastic. Brilliant. Apple TV Plus delivered again. Did I review Servant on here? I think so. Oh, shit. I've wrote a lot of notes about it, not knowing that (laughs) I've done that. Right, so this is an Apple TV joint, as we mentioned. It premiered at the back end of 2019. I'm going to give away as I probably did at the time, the basic premise of the first season, but most of it's outlined in the first episode of season one. It's about a couple who suffer an unbelievable tragedy when their 13-week-old son dies. However, how that unfolds is not initially outlined. Following the event, the mother suffers a psychotic break, a break so severe that the only thing that brings her out of this state is the arguably horrendous decision to introduce a reborn doll to take the place of her now deceased child. This is seen as some method of therapy for her. The mother, played by Lauren Ambrose of Six Feet Under Fame, she's horrifically consumed by her own grief and depression following the death, and she believes that this doll is her son. I've spoke about it before. We'll move on a bit. I remember that come the finale, I was left feeling slightly disappointed as it was too open-ended and I had more questions than answers. For that very reason, the first season wasn't the, they've completely knocked it out of the park success that I was hoping for, but definitely one that I would still recommend, and it sounds as though you would too. Season two, I'm going to keep brief because I feel like I've managed to not give too much away. It is a direct continuation of what happens in season one. It picks up mere moments after the events of the last episode. 
I'm only two episodes in, but it does seem as though it sheds its horror skin in favour of being more of a straightforward thriller. But I think that is a purposeful misdirect. Again, it sticks to the same formula of expanding upon plot threads, which leads to even more unanswered questions. But so far, I'm not frustrated by that. They haven't completely abandoned the things that were left unanswered at the end of season one. They're still present here, which can only lead me to believe that they will give me some answers. One thing that I was struck by is how enjoyable it was to be back with this cast of characters. There's a really good dynamic and chemistry between the central three. Along with the husband and wife, you also get Rupert Grint playing the brother of the grieving mother. He's normally there as a bit of comedy relief, but I don't want to give you a false impression of what he brings to the show, and I'm sure you'll attest to this. He's not just a one-dimensional character. He's selfish. He's obnoxious. He's dealing with his own demons. He's a very complicated guy, and I think that he's brilliant in that role, as is everyone, really. It's it's a very good cast. Just to go back to the comedy aspect, too, the comedy is pretty sparse in season one, and it usually arises from characters reacting to the absurdity of the situation they're faced with. In season two, there's more focus on the dark humour, and they play with it in a way that I'm finding really interesting. Initial impressions are positive. My only concern is the central thing that brought the creep factor is absent so far from season two. Again, not trying to give too much away. I'm being vague. Can it sustain the suspense for another 10 episodes? Will it wrap things up in a tight enough bow that I feel satisfied this time round? I'm not sure, but I will definitely be finding out because I like what I see so far. They have already renewed it for season three, and that was before the second season aired, so they must have some sort of confidence in it. I was putting it off until more episodes came out, but you've tempted me to go and take a look at season two up to now. What else have you got? Next up is a Korean mystery thriller from 2017 that is available on Netflix called Forgotten. I stumbled upon this when I was re-familiarising myself with underrated films of the 2010s for our list last week. This one cropped up. I'd never heard of it. I saw it had quite favourable reviews and I thought, yep, I'll give that a go. It's about a family, a mum, dad and two brothers who move into a new home. The central protagonist is the younger brother of the two who one night, shortly after moving in, witnesses his older brother being abducted. He then returns 19 days later with amnesia. He's no idea what's happened to him. Shortly thereafter, his other brother starts to notice behavioural inconsistencies that lead him to believe that he doesn't quite know whether this is the same man who left his house that night. Hmm... I don't want to oversell this film. However, this film made me completely rethink how I recommend films on this podcast. (laughs) So that's bold. That is bold. We say recommend for our main reviews so much more often than we don't. And I do want to stand by those opinions. But having watched this, I started asking myself real questions about lovebirds and the midnight sky. There are more examples, but I'm asking myself, am I glad that I watched this? Did it bring something interesting and new? Was it a good use of my time? Am I going to be thinking about this a year from now? And if I revisit a lot of those films we've given passes to, I genuinely don't know if the answer to all of them questions is yes. But we watch so many run-of-the-mill films that we give it a pass because it's just either okay or I've seen worse. And I guess given the nature of the Hollywood machine of relying on algorithms and box office to determine what gets made, we're spoilt for choice, but it's substandard choice. What I'm trying to say is, subconsciously, my standards have been lowered and it took a film 
that frankly 90% of UK audiences have never heard of and are never going to watch to wake me up and become wise to this. I used to watch quite a lot of foreign cinema for this very reason, but I don't know why I've not stayed on top of that in recent years. It just feels so much more original and ambitious than at least 70% of everything that we reviewed over the last year for our main reviews. It's so expertly well plotted that the only thing that I could think in the last 12 months that comes close to that is Knives Out. It's visually interesting, it's tense, it's exhilarating, it challenges your allegiances to characters, it makes you doubt whether what you're seeing is actually the case. It's just a fantastic film that felt like a wholly original story, or at the very least, it was a twist on a familiar one. There's no point even guessing where the story goes in this. If you're going blind, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. It's a film that is becoming the norm. What does going blind have to do with anything? (laughs) (laughs) If you go into the film not knowing anything, there you go, I phrased it differently. Right, okay, yep. It's a film that, and I know this is becoming the norm, it's difficult to discuss without affecting your experience, but please, please watch this and Hollywood, make more films like this. I do feel like I built it up too much, but it just really was a welcome surprise. Could you give us the name again in case there are listeners that have become more interested as you've gone on? Indeed, I can. If you've forgotten, the film is called Forgotten. Excellent. That worked out better than expected. I think part of it is that the English language Netflix stuff is just there to tick the right boxes and get in the top 10 list, whereas the foreign language stuff has more of a identity and it feels like they've given the non-American production companies money to just do what they want, just make something interesting. And they do make something interesting, like Dark or Forgotten and lots of other examples that I'm not going to list. If you think back on some of the stuff that we were more enthusiastic about in the last 12 months it's been foreign content hasn't it it has yeah it has and something like emily in paris i've not even bothered because i can immediately tell that it's the most bland thing you could possibly make but it gets in the number one spot on netflix it's a crying shame but a trend that will probably not change anytime soon speaking of trends and trending topics and news real news it's a segue it's the real thing it is now real, real news, news. First off, cinema is not a corpse. Not yet a woman. Britney Spears reference. I don't think that makes sense. Box office records were smashed this weekend, kind of. This article comes courtesy of Deadline.com. A few weeks back, we talked about the streaming giant that is HBO Max and how they are planning on releasing their entire slate of films for 2021, direct to streaming services and theatres at the same time in the US, anyway. We were both a bit dubious about the whole thing. Cinema experience aside, why would you go to the cinema when you know you have the option of watching it at home? It seems, James, that we've been slightly wrong because this week a film was released on the service, The Little Things, a serial killer crime thriller with an all-star cast consisting of Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. And it broke post-pandemic records for being the highest-earning R-rated film to be released during this time. It took $4.8 at the box office in its opening weekend, which beat off the former film that held this accolade, and that's Let Him Go with Diane Lane and Kevin Costner. And that was released on video on demand at the same time, so it's, it's not a huge amount of money, 
But I'm thinking we were wrong because when I've looked into the stats, let him go, which has been out significantly longer, 60% of his entire box office has been earned at the cinema. So people are still choosing to go. And I thought it was a pointless venture. I don't think you were quite as vocal on it as me, but it's just surprised me that there's still a point to this. I'm glad to be wrong. It does show then releasing both doesn't mean it's the end of cinemas. Money talks and people want to have that experience. I do get the sense, though, that this $4.8 million that it made is purely people who do not believe the coronavirus is a real thing, though. Right, and the rest of the people that think that coronavirus is real are subscribed to HBO Max. Yes. Right, okay. It makes sense. I don't want it to make sense, but I think it does make sense. James, do you have any news this week? A Swedish COVID nurse will watch an entire film festival alone in a lighthouse. She's won a competition to watch an entire 60-movie programme of the Gothenburg Film Festival from a lighthouse on an isolated island off the coast of Sweden. Lisa Enroth beat off 20,000 film fans from around the world who applied. She said she's been drained of energy due to the pandemic, and it says on BBC News that she won't have a phone, computer, books, or any form of entertainment but she will be given a tablet so that she can record a video diary. I just hope that there is an actual phone. I hope she can contact people if, say, the projector or the light in the lighthouse falls on her head and she needs urgent medical attention. I just think this is a, it's a recipe for disaster. I don't think this will be cleared by health and safety in the UK. No, I think you're right. And my main question here is, was the projector an assumption? Because I wanted to know what size TV has she got while she's got no other means of entertainment. Is it a sufficiently sized TV? If it is a projector, is it on quite a wide surface? For a moment, I was concerned that she was having to watch all these on the tablet when you mentioned she had access to that. To watch the films, a screen has been set up in the lantern room at the top of the lighthouse where she can experience a 360-degree view of her new surroundings. So again here, she has to climb these narrow stairs every day to watch them, which cannot be safe. It cannot be safe. What if she watches them at night? Have you been at the top of a lighthouse? Yeah, it's quite intimidating. I'm going to keep my eye on this. I don't think this is a good idea. Oh, what an odd piece of news there. Interesting, though. Have you got any more news? People can't stop having sex with Keanu Reeves. Have you heard about this? No. It's just a bit of fun news while we're in dark times. And it's relevant because Keanu Reeves is an actor. But Cyberpunk 2077, which to the uninitiated is a game that was severely hyped for over 10 years nearly, there seems to be no limit to the amount of things that you can do within the game, including having sex with fellow characters. If you don't know, Keanu Reeves was used to promote the game at E3 and in various marketing campaigns, and he features in the game as a character. It seems as though some keen PC modders have gotten around the restriction of him not being one of the people that you're able to have sex with, and they've inserted him into this scenario now, so you can have sex with Keanu Reeves at your leisure, which has prompted a statement from the studio behind the game, CD Projekt Red, who say... When it comes to models of real people whom we've asked to participate in the game, we kindly ask you to refrain from using them in any situation that might be found offensive if you don't have their explicit permission. To everyone out there who is still playing Cyberpunk 2077, just stop. Just stop, okay? There's plenty other people to have sex with. 
Why has it got to be Keanu Reeves? Chill out. The most jarring thing about that is you saying Cyberpunk 2077. In all the videos that I've watched, no one has said 2077. I realised that when we got to the end of the news piece. So I apologise. We're not going to re-record this whole bit. Should have said it correctly. 2077. You made my heart jump when you read out the quote. I thought you were going to say, CD Projekt Red have said, anyone that's participated and agreed to have their model used in the game is fair game for sex mods. Deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) You did. (laughs) That's what I thought that was building up to. If it had had a smoother release, they might have been ballsy enough to say that, but they cannot set a foot wrong at this point. Not entirely relevant, but interesting, I thought. Well, we've talked about cyberpunk, so we've hit another trending topic for the purposes of hashtag content. Six weeks too late. What are you talking about, yeah? I very much disagree with that. You do not have good opinions. What an idiot. I hate everything. You can't even speak. Nothing you're saying makes sense. Conflicts of interest. This week's conflicts of interest, as you mentioned, James, can you trust IMDb ratings? It's a topic that I think will provoke much discussion right up top i just want to say i used a few sources for this which i will acknowledge one of which is an article by gail Stadkira on film companion which is an indian website which largely talks about bollywood films but the same points can be applied to hollywood first off james how do you approach rating systems such as imdb do you use them at all to make any decision on your viewing habits I actually don't use IMDb ratings. I only learn about IMDb ratings from you. I usually look at Rotten Tomatoes or Tomatoes ratings, but only as a discussion point and as information about the conversation around the film, not to actually inform me about whether it's good or not. That Does that make sense? It does make sense. So you don't do that initial, oh, here's something... Let me just see what people think about it before I decide what to watch. Do you always go in blindly? Thinking about the last two things that I watched, Bling Empire and Tenants of City, I did go in blind. I already know the answer to this, but do you use IMDb ratings? Yes, religiously. I use them to make decisions about what I watch. And I know that's problematic, but I use a combination of user reviews, in-depth reviews sometimes, Critical consensus and IMDb ratings to dictate what I will and won't watch. And it goes back to another conflicts of interest where we discussed that there's too much content. I just feel as though this has become a necessary evil for me to get a lay of the land. So in order to shortlist things, I'll do a quick assessment as to whether it's worth my time because my time is precious, as is everyone else's. But I don't want to waste my time on something if I know it meets my criteria for, nah, skip it. My thing is, if it's over 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb, I'm very interested. And then I have a tolerance level of 0.5 below that, that I will allow. So we get to a six or less, it's skip it. Do you think I'm wrong for doing so? I don't think you're wrong. I just have a totally different approach to it. I love the level of detail. I love it. I respect it. I just don't do that at all. If anything, if something is universally panned, total waste of time, do not watch it. Say the recent director video, Bruce Willis films, that is indication of don't bother. But I'm thinking more in terms of something where it's universally praised or 
it's in that 6.5 range, that is an indication to me of how much I'm going to enjoy it. Something that's universally praised doesn't mean that I will actually like it. And if something's in that mediocre IMDb range, like American Psycho, I might love it. And it yeah, I get that. So the, the dictation of what I'm going to watch only comes from people saying, definitely do not watch this. It's universally bad. Apart from that, I'm not going to let that dictate whether I watch something or not. Who's people, though, in that scenario? Are you referring to critics or just people you know? The Rotten Tomatoes critics and audience score. So in fact, you kind of, to an extent, do the same as me, but using a different system. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Only in extreme cases will it make me not watch something. Yeah. It won't make me watch something, and it definitely won't make me think something's better or worse than I feel it is. Which I suppose should lead us on to the main sticking point, which is, should they be used at all? Is it accurate? Because the complication with my approach, and you've fully highlighted it there, it's not always a fair reflection on the film. And that can be for a myriad of reasons. If it's positive, it could be a ploy from the filmmakers and studios submitting fake reviews to get their rating up. If it's negative, it could be a film that's steeped in controversy or it's got graphic content. Maybe people have a political agenda and disagree with some of the views put forth within the film. It could be fanboys. If it's a Marvel film, maybe the diehard DC following a review bombing the direct competition. Or it could be that it's a niche of a film that's only going to speak to a certain audience, but not the masses. But that doesn't mean it's a bad film. I'm going to come in hard and just say that you can't trust IMDb ratings. It's mainly Americans who have their own sensibilities, which will not necessarily be the same as me. And some things, it's fashionable to like them. It's an approved thing to like, like any Kurosawa film. I don't think you can say to someone, well, look at this Kurosawa film that's got 8.5. I'm sure you'll like it. That does not mean that someone's going to like some black and white samurai film from the 70s. Some things it's fashionable to dislike, like any Adam Sandler film. And some things in more recent years become a battleground for the culture war, like Captain Marvel, for example. People will give Captain Marvel a one because Brie Larson can't keep her mouth shut. And then other people will give it a 10 just because they think everyone giving it a 1 is sexist, even though they know they're going to forget about it just like everyone else's. That applies to Rotten Tomatoes as well, where it becomes such a battleground that the reviews, they're their own story. The recent example is Mulan that gets review bombed for political reasons and any rating that you see of it anywhere just goes completely out the window. And some films with the critics' reviews, it represents a cultural moment like Black Panther or Wonder Woman. And you know that, at least to some extent, it's getting positive reviews for what it represents and the cultural moment that it's in. Not actually, is this a good two hours or not? And I think part of that problem stems from how your vote is counted. So I did a bit of digging because I actually didn't know any of the intricacies around this, but... You just need a registered IMDb account to leave a review, don't you? There's no way of knowing whether you've watched the film. And within the article that I referenced at the beginning, they make mention of the fact that IMDb says that they've got ways and means of detecting targeted attacks at films, but it offers absolutely no detail on what those methods are. You don't quite know what's gone into the calculations. There is, on the FAQ section of IMDb, some information around this but it's equally vague 
there's a question around how they're calculated in terms of the ratings, and IMDb says, we take all the individual ratings cast by IMDb registered users and use them to calculate a single rating. We don't use the arithmetic mean, i.e. the sums of all votes divided by the number of votes, although we do display the mean and average votes on the votes breakdown page. Instead, the rating displayed on the titles page is a weighted average. The weighted average does not change upon receipt of each new vote, but instead is updated numerous times per day. Is this making sense to you? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Not just me then. A TV series rating is not the weighted average of the ratings of individual episodes. Instead, customers vote separately for the ratings of the series as a whole via each title series page. There is then a question, what does weighted average mean? IMDb publishes weighted vote averages rather than raw data averages. The simplest way to explain it is that although we accept and consider all votes received by users, not all votes have the same impact or weight on the final rating. When usual voting activity is detected, a different weighting calculation may be applied to preserve the reliability of our system. To ensure our rating mechanism remains effective, we don't disclose the exact method used to generate the rating. I don't understand any of that. I don't understand it. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Another thing is that so many films are in that 6.5 range. It doesn't give me any information. There's only obvious films like Shawshank Redemption and Godfather that break through to 8 point something, which you could guess anyway. I feel like you can guess the rating for the good and bad films. Everything else is six point something, so it doesn't give me any information. It is difficult, and I know that it's a problem, and I should probably slap myself on the wrist for relying on my IMDb in order to make my decisions when it comes to what I watch. But I have to use something, and this is what I've used for 10 years. And I do feel like, for the most part, it is a fairish representation of what people think. I know there's anomalies in there, but I feel like when I've double-checked, a lot of it lines up with sites like Rotten Tomatoes. So, for example, there's a film called Fatal, which is a erotic thriller starring Hilary Swank and Michael Ealy, and it sits at a score of 5 out of 10 on IMDb. But if I go over to Rotten Tomatoes, it holds 46% with 54 critics' reviews, and that's pretty much in line with those user ratings on IMDb, isn't it? But yet... It has an audience score of 87% based on 615 user ratings. So it's just as clear as mud. Who do you believe? Who do you believe? I don't know. Believe straight-talking podcasters from the north of England. That's who you should believe. Well said. I'm not going to challenge you there. Another one which just points out what an issue this is. Do you remember the Wilds that you watched half an episode of, and I think I watched three episodes of, the Amazon original series that was released before Christmas? Yes, about an all-female plane crash on an island. That's the one. I don't know what the reason was, whether it got review bombed, but when it first came out, it held around 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb. Now that, straight out of the gate, does not meet my criteria. I was put off. I didn't want to watch it. Over the next few weeks, it then went up to 6.2, and now it sits at 7.2 out of 10, which is very different from first impressions. And I think it speaks to how problematic it is, especially when it comes to TV that's in the midst of airing. People make snap decisions on whether to give a show a chance to breathe. And it's not fair because it's probably discouraged so many people from watching that show. I agree. It's not fair, especially with TV that needs to grow a bit. Another anomaly that you will like, 
The Sinner, season one and two, about 89% audience score. Season three, which you've said is the best season, 46%. What? Huge drop off. Rubbish. I mean, I've heard some finely put arguments on why season three is not as strong as the other two, but I just personally disagree. James, we could go off on one forever and a day, but let's wrap it up. What are your final thoughts? Normally, I would accept the outcome of a democratic vote, but in the case of IMDb ratings, it's too open to manipulation. It cannot be trusted. So I'm afraid I do not trust them, and I'd rather have my own opinion, not just about the film after I've watched it, but before I've watched it when I'm making my choice as well. Daniel, what about you? I do feel a bit of a hypocrite for the reasons we've already mentioned. There's some obvious things that go on that skew these figures, and it does have an impact on the reliability of these sources. But it is something that provides you with a very, very basic metric to make a decision. And for me personally, I need that. What I will say is try and keep your options open in terms of what you do use to make that decision. So don't just rely on IMDb, use other sources. And as you kind of said, James, approach viewing choices with an open mind. I think that's all you can really do. Don't be guided by simply a score unless it's consistent across three different websites. Let's see if our two opinions are consistent with each other in this week's main review. Hello, I'd like to order an opinion please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Call me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week, it's synchronic. You know, they say we see everything once in this gig. Pretty sure we've never seen this. watching this i'm probably trying to convince you of something pretty unbelievable or i'm dead i do anything to get her back but this is i mean the next dose could kill you there are things that are far worse than death what happened to him they're not returning. It's gotta be me. You can't deal with reality. Yeah, because you're <laughs> The clock keeps ticking down. The time is an illusion. In this surprise prequel to Falcon and Winter Soldier, Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan defend people not from Thanos, but from drug addiction and creepy music. This low-budget entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe ingeniously saves money by filming the second act on a camcorder and having one of the two leads spend half the film walking around a house looking at things in silence. Or two New Orleans paramedics' lives are ripped apart after they encounter a series of horrific deaths linked to a designer drug with bizarre otherworldly effects. Daniel, what did you think of Synchronic? For me, this film feels like it's marketed as a horror 
I don't know if you agree with that, but it feels much more of a sci-fi thriller. It just happens to feature some horrific images. In terms of the plot, it's a concept we're all quite familiar with, but it does aware with the science of machines and wires and technology in general and replaces it with a tiny pill. I'm trying not to give too much away here. The early parts of the film are about these two paramedics responding to various emergency calls only to find people in various states of confusion or death following this drug grip in their city. From a filmmaking standpoint, it's competent, which is far from a glowing recommendation. If there's one thing that elevates the film, it's some of the visuals, especially when the lines between reality and something else become blurred. There's a distortion of characters and environments around them that is depicted in a really interesting way. Very cool use of effects, and I like what they did with that. It doesn't really attempt to explain to you the intricacies behind how the sci-fi element in this story works, or at least that was my take. They do explain things here and there, but by the end, there's just too many fortunate coincidences that made me abandon trying to make sense of it. I really do want to get your thoughts on this in a bit, but a lot of the conversational dialogue in the film did not seem to flow well at all, and it was borderline not making sense. It felt really fragmented, like they'd edited random bits together, and it just didn't flow for me. There was no real substance to the proceedings. I did find it hard to latch onto anything in particular and stay invested in the story, and I think that's because there's really limited development of the characters in the film. Basically, Jamie Dornan has a personal issue, so does Anthony Mackie. That's about it. I didn't really buy into the friendship between them. They spend the entire middle act of the film completely separate from one another, despite a lot going on in the personal lives. Jamie Dornan, in particular, is a bit of a non-character in this. It felt very much led by Anthony Mackie, this film. Dornan almost feels like a side character and doesn't deserve the equal billing that he has. I'm not a hater, by the way. I wasn't wounded with Fifty Shades of Grey. That hasn't damaged my relationship or opinion of him. But I don't think he's particularly good in this either. More scenes, he's just whining about something. And one scene in particular, he cries, and it came off as poor acting more than anything else. That's all pretty negative, but I will say it's significantly more original than the majority of shit that's churned out these days, as I alluded to earlier on. But I thought it was a very middle-of-the-road film. It didn't blow me away. I wasn't waiting for it to end either. That's my thoughts. James, what about you? I didn't even notice there was a scene with James Dornan crying. So maybe that's a sign of how bad his performance was. Many reviews for this mentioned The Endless, the previous film by Benson and Moorhead, the writer-directors, and say that Synchronic fits their style, but it's not as good. Fortunately... I hadn't seen The Endless before this, and I don't know their style, so I was coming into this fresh, and I'd only watched the trailer once weeks ago. What is notable is that although it's an indie, mind-bending sci-fi film, it is a very clear story. I think we agree on that. And I don't think that's a bad thing that it becomes more focused as it goes on. It doesn't introduce more and more rules and details for the drug and what it does. I liked that part of it. It's simple but beguiling and thought-provoking. Despite the sci-fi elements and the short length, it does give you time to think and listen to the characters, just talk to each other. It's not unlike anything I've seen before, but I can't point to anything specifically that it is like. It's like an episode of The Twilight Zone or Star Trek. 
Can you think of anything that this is like? No, not off the top of my head. Is there a film called Bringing Out the Dead with Nicolas Cage that is about him in an ambulance? Yes, that. And in fact, I read a review and I thought, oh God, yeah, that is really similar. Project Power. It's like an amalgamation of Bringing Out the Dead and Project Power. (laughs) Yeah, put that on the poster. It's a little bit like a Christopher Nolan film. Introduce some characters, explain the rules of this concept for this film and have a finale that plays with those rules for dramatic effect. And Inception is the purest example of that. I liked how unsettling and dreamlike parts of it is. The paramedics finding bad things happening is a good setup that sets the mood. It's always nighttime. Everything is dirty. The people are broken and sweaty. And it nods to bigger ideas with the aerial shots that cut to the stars. And there's a shot of some trenches from above. And it's the same shape as a constellation that it cuts to. I liked all of that. And there's sometimes something off in a scene, like the doctor who has a glass eye, or the policeman with a scar next to his eye, or the main characters talking in a bar with mirrors behind them. So there's this infinite space behind them. And there are two times when, or two times that I saw, when Anthony Mackie is framed in a certain way and it cuts to the next scene with him still in that position, which plays with the idea of moving through space and time. Anthony Mackie's redemption arc from Altered Carbon Season 2 is complete for me. I liked him in Outside the Wire and this is the best I've ever seen him. The character didn't have much depth, but I thought his performance was tortured and confused and funny at times and some other emotions. James Dornan, you've covered, I agree with everything you've said there. This has a one-star review in The Guardian, which I think is very unfair. I thought it was rich in themes and visually interesting, and it is an accessible sci-fi thriller. I will say that since watching this, I did watch The Endless, the other Benson and Moorhead work. Yes, that is better, and you can watch that on all four, but it's less accessible than Synchronic. I have seen a few of their films. I don't recall them in much detail, but this feels more mainstream than any of the stuff that I've seen them do before from memory. I wanted to pick up on a point you've said about the genres. Do you think it crossed too many genres? Do you think it was a jack of all genres and a master of none? Where It does start off as a horror with the women screaming at each other in masks, and then it's sci-fi, but it's also family, domestic drama. Did you find that that was strange to cross so many genres? No, and I didn't find it perplexing to the point of me thinking, you don't know what you want this film to be. I thought it balanced that quite well. A lot of the stuff you mentioned, actually, around its themes and its ideas, it's all packed in there. I just don't feel as though enough of it was explored in any depth. It's all just kind of surface level, shall we say. And that's fine. I just was expecting a bit more because for this type of film, normally you see a lot of negative reviews and this has been quite favourable. So I think I was expecting more of it than I got out of it, which was was a shame, but by all means, it's not a terrible film. And when the trailer says it's mind-bending, that set an expectation for me that it would make you think quite a lot, but it is relatively straightforward. I think that's a positive overall. Shall we ask each other the question? Yes, I don't think we're in Synchronic this week. James, would you recommend Synchronic? Yes, I would recommend Synchronic. Not for the current rental price of $13.99. Hang on for it to be available on one of your streaming services. Daniel, would you recommend Synchronic? 
when I spoke about The Forgotten earlier on in the episode, I mentioned that I might revisit how I review films with a different criteria. But I promise you, this will all be non-verbal and in my head going forward. But for the sake of fleshing out that idea, I'll revisit it. Am I glad I watched it? Kind of. Did it bring something new and interesting? Sort of. Was it a good use of my time? Debatable. Am I going to be thinking about this a year from now? Probably not. More importantly, though, is it worth renting for $13.99? Absolutely not. You've covered it, though. I agree. I think if it comes to a streaming service and it's part of the package, yes, do give it a watch. But that's very pricey for this film. Yeah, yeah, that is mental. That is mental. This has the same UK distributor as Possessor Signature Films. Oh, really? One to look out for, then. At least they're taking a gamble on some more interesting projects by the looks of it anyway. Okay, let's absolutely spoil the ending. Bruce Willis' real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. We did a really good job there, James. Neither of us mentioned that it was a time travel film, did we? No, we didn't. And in the trailer that you, listener, will have already heard before this, it doesn't really explicitly say that it's time travel. So I consider that to be a spoiler, that he takes a pill that sends him to a random point in time, depending on where he is. But it only lasts for eight minutes, and he has to go back to the exact spot to return safely. Sometimes. Yeah, when it's... (laughs) I've discovered that things in the present can anchor you here. What? (laughs) (laughs) It didn't make any sense. I didn't know whether some of that had gone completely past me, by the way, because I I didn't even know it was something in the present that had caused him to stay stuck in that time period. I just didn't know what caused it. So I thought, hang on, why has the rules been bent here? I didn't didn't know what that was. So I think you provided a bit more clarity for me there. Okay. This is a low-budget film, a low-budget time travel film. It seems to get around the challenge of being low-budget by apparently only going into the past. So he never goes into... 2077 see lots of technological stuff however i want to get your take on this did you think he only went into the past or was he also going into the far future is this a trick question no no i thought he was only traveling to the past i thought there were times where it could have been in the future the two people at the start it shows the woman in a mask screaming i thought maybe that's in a mad max future where the air is so polluted that she's got this tribal mask on. And the guy that gets in the elevator, he is transported to a desert landscape. I don't think America has been at any point in the past. An actual desert, like the Sahara Desert. And I wondered, oh, is that really, really far in the future where America is a desert? That's a very good point, actually. And it only became apparent to me right towards the end of the film that when they travel in the past, it's not blindly like, oh, I'll appear somewhere. You are inhabiting the same space that you're in at the moment, but at a different point in time. That did not become clear to me until very late on in the film, which did clear up a lot of problems that I had with it, to be honest. And the other time I thought it was the future was where he gets transported to somewhere at night and some people who appear to be a shaman spiritual tribe try to catch him and say that he's a spirit i thought that could be in a post-modern civilization future where everyone's reverted back to being in tribes and the way they looked it seemed like that didn't match with any point of american history 
that's made me have a newfound appreciation for the filmmakers, actually, because you could argue that they've been as vague with the settings for it to be open to interpretation. It could be the past or present, and therefore it does away with that, oh, we're restricted with the budget mentality. It could be either or. Hmm, didn't think of it like that. Interesting. That part of it, I had fun with. I enjoyed when he travelled back, and you could go, oh, that's Spanish colonialist, that's Civil War. I thought that was fun. Yeah, and for something that probably did have a modest budget, I thought it was pretty well realised, to be honest. It didn't feel restricted by what money they had to spend on it. It did seem pretty solid, so hats off to them for that, yeah. Good work. One thing around this drug-taking time travel concept that I didn't quite buy into... It just so happens that this drug affects the gland in his brain, which is affected by this brain tumour that he has. Just so happens, the exact gland. Were you not screaming at your screen when that happened? I thought, oh, what? Get a grip. That's just lazy. It was very convenient. And these writers, they can make their own rules. So they tied themselves to this gland rule. So they had to make up that Anthony Mackie had a cancerous gland that let him go back into the future past. And there was also the convenience of the maker of the drug going into the drug shop at exactly the same time as him <laughs> so that the drug maker could deliver the exposition about what the drug was and how it was yeah. made. That's what I meant before, though, about a few too many coincidences for me to really get on board. I thought some of it didn't need to be as lazy as it was. They could have actually been more vague and that would have caused me to have less problems with it. But no, never mind. Never mind. The bit where he travels back in time and he's trying to physically bring his dog back with him, but the lead is just outside of his grasp and he's screaming like to get hold of his dog for at least 10 seconds, jump over the couch and grab it. That really frustrated me. I don't know if you noticed that bit. I did. He had the time to jump over the couch, but I think the idea of the scene was that he was too afraid to leave that exact spot. He thought, I need to be in this exact position and I cannot move. If I move, I'm stuck here forever. That's what I thought was going on. That was my explanation. Which, to be fair, given that it is second nature for me to try and tear things apart, that is a very good reason. That's just reminded me for no reason at all of the time. When I was in Japan, I was lying down on my sofa. I couldn't reach my remote control, which was on the floor. Rather than get up, I tried to stretch for it. I fell off the sofa, and then an earthquake happened at the exact moment that I fell off the sofa. Did you instinctively think that your actions may have caused it? Yeah, I thought, what have I just done to the floor? It, but it was an earthquake. Uh, shouldn't laugh about earthquakes, but that was a funny anecdote. Something else that we shouldn't laugh at, but I did a little bit, was the Ku Klux Klan appearance in this film. So Anthony Mackie travels back a few decades, and he's in his own house, but in the past. He walks around town. They obviously are not keen on him being there. When he goes back into the house to wait for the jump back to happen, someone sees him. The guy shouts for the police, and these guys in Ku Klux Klan hoods run in, and that's where the dog thing happens. I had this image of these guys just sat around in the full Ku Klux Klan outfit waiting for the call. They're just sat around chatting, waiting to be threatening, looking all pathetic. And then when they do turn up, it's like they all tried to cram to the door and fall over each other. It was a bit silly. It was a dark comedy moment, I thought. And it was confirmed to me that it was supposed to be a bit silly because Anthony Mackie says, the future sucks. 
It's like it's supposed to all be a bit borderline funny that he can't stop getting chased every time he appears in the past. You cleared something else up for me there because when he was shouting the guy in the house, the homeowner of the past, I thought he was shouting Louise. Wondered why he shouted his wife's name and five men ran in the room. (laughs) But you're saying it's police, which I guess would make sense. Did you pick up on some of the other comedy as well? Like when he tries to sit in the same place where he thinks Brianna, the daughter, is when he goes back. He comes back. He realises he's not in the right place and he shouts at her friend, why didn't you tell me she wasn't sat here? I thought that was funny. Yes, no, I did laugh at that bit because I think he fobs her off by saying something like, go inside, you high. Yeah, I did, I did find that quite funny. The way he delivers it anyway. I've not done it justice there. There's brief moments of lightness in this, but it is predominantly bleak. <laughs> Talking about the relationship between Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan, do you agree with what I said earlier? Did you really feel as though there was much there between them or did you feel it was a bit lacking? I thought it was strange as well. They're best friends since childhood, but they seem to mainly be sad when they're with each other and fight each other and have deep resentment towards each other. And I agree with another thing that you said, that James Dawn fades into the background of the film. I also found it a bit strange that he wouldn't tell his best friend that he's dying until he absolutely has to, which then led on to a scene that we don't see where presumably Anthony Mackie describes the whole of what's been going on and that he is taking a pill, subsequently time-travelling, going back and forth. Words escape me as to how he explained this away, but we just see Jamie Dorn and go, all right, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. This is risky, isn't it? Why is he immediately bought into it? Because it's only one hour, 40 minutes long. They don't have Wonder Woman 1984 runtime. I think he showed him the videotapes that he'd been making to explain that he was disappearing. I think that helped James Dornan to accept it. But yeah, he should have been more shocked. I agree there was the videotape element of it. But in 2021, if I came to you and I showed you that, your first reaction would be, right, well, that's been done in Adobe Premiere, obviously. Not going to believe that. That's a very simple trick to apply to a video wouldn't instantly go, Jesus, James has been time travelling. Didn't see that one coming. You're right. He accepted it too quickly, but I think he knew that there was only 15 minutes of the film left. One other thing in terms of being an unexplored idea that I don't really know why it was here. The whole thing about the coffins and Hurricane Katrina. What was the relevance of all that? It never, that is really interesting. And I thought, oh, I wonder what bearing this is going to have on the plot. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Did I miss something there or was that just pointless? What I think was going on there was a link to the overall message of the film of not dwelling in the past and living in the present. Don't dwell on these past moments. Don't let your mind be transported into these other moments, whether it's by a drug or by actual time travel. Live in the now. I think that's what was going on. I'll take that on board. You're fighting hard for this film and I'm finding it difficult to come back at you with anything but agreement, so good on you. One last thing I'll challenge on. So we get to the finale, which throws up even more questions for me as to how this whole thing works. He goes back in time to find his friend's daughter. He finds her, but she's been missing for four days-ish. She's only ventured 600 yards from where she spawned in four days. Are they stuck in an infinite loop of time where they'll just live like an hour 
and then it resets and they're doing it again. I just thought this doesn't make sense. I think I was maybe too forgiving here because I thought, right, she's an 18-year-old woman, not a girl, maybe not yet a woman. That's a callback. Got no idea where she is and she hasn't gone anywhere because she's too scared to go anywhere. She's so shocked that she's put herself in that Civil War trench in the middle of a war zone and not moved. And she's drinking water from the canteens of the dead soldiers around her for four days. That was my imagination, but I grant you that I've had to do the work there to explain why she's just sat there for four days so that the plot of the film can happen. I'm being too harsh, I think. I'm, I'm being far too harsh. I think I'm being too generous. The correct answer might come somewhere in the middle, and I'm sure the IMDb rating will arrive at that correct rating. <laughs> I will say, we've debated it, 6.2, you can trust that IMDb rating. That's accurate for me. I think that's fair. So this all culminates in Anthony Mackie sacrificing himself for the second week in a row um, for our main review. And then we get this send-off where he appears in ghostly-ish form to Jamie Dornan, and they shake hands because a mission well done. He's brought his daughter back. And all I could think was, wouldn't it be hilarious if them shaking hands caused him to take him back in the past with him? I wanted that depressing, gloomy ending, but it didn't happen. Just change the rules at the very last second of the film. Yeah. The, one of the criticisms I've seen in the film is that the ending is too simple, that it becomes a more straightforward rescue mission, basically, and there is no mystery. I didn't mind that. I thought it was fine. Again, it's different from The Endless, where it's up to interpretation, I think, what is happening. What was your reaction to it becoming pretty much a straightforward rescue mission in the end? I didn't mind it. I think we've had different journeys with this film. So by this point, I was frame weary and I knew that I wasn't going to quite get the film that I'd anticipated from the off. So I'd settled into a, this is going to be an average film and that's what I got. I'll be honest, it didn't live up to my expectations, but I did like it. I've been a lot more down on it. It is different enough to warrant a watch. It's just that price point that comes into play, I think, when you make the decision. Another film, another week, and another okay. And another okay episode of In the Isles, I hope. We smashed it, James. It was brilliant. Next week, what are we reviewing next week, James? Greenland, starring Gerard Butler. I'm really, really looking forward to that one. I know we said that about synchronicity. Synchronicity? Synchronic this week, but yeah, geared up for that. As ever, please reach out to us at inthehourspodcast at gmail.com. Give the podcast a five-star review on your favourite podcast app, should it give you the ability to rate us such. Some don't. Selfish. iTunes. I'm talking about iTunes. James, Instagram. How can people get in touch? In the Isles podcast. So from now until next time, don't do drugs. But please remember, if you do choose to go down that dark path, don't do pills unless you've got more than one to hand. That's not me condoning drugs. That's a reference to the film. Bye. Bye.